Welcome to the CEC Report for the 15th of September 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is Craig Isherwood, the CEC Leader. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show we have Replace APRA's Bank Protection Racket with Glass-Steagall and BRICS Development Strategy Can End Era of Permanent War. So firstly, Replace APRA's Bank Protection Racket with Glass-Steagall. So APRA the Australian Protection Racket, uh, I mean, uh, Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, I should say, um, has been, uh, it has been proposed by the Treasury that APRA be given crisis management powers that in a financial crisis, they would basically be able to take over the banks and run them, control their assets, do it all in secret, and not be held accountable for any of the implications of that after the fact. Now, we're on a campaign, and we have been for some time, to uh, junk that idea and replace it with real bank regulation, the only thing that ac actually can prevent a crisis happening in the first place. It's not some after-the-fact crisis management, but prevent a crisis with Glass-Steagall banking regulation instead. It's really quite amazing, Lisa, when you think about it. Here you have the government giving a statutory body the powers to become a dictatorship. Yeah. And all we're saying in a campaign is let's have a system that separates out the legitimate and necessary banking system, the, the normal banking system, what every economy needs, the boring banking system, having a bank that's protected, you know, people's deposits to pay, so that pensioners can put their money into the banking system, you know, the deposits are protected, mortgages are protected, you know, lending is protected. All the boring stuff that you expect banks to be are, is protected from the ravages mm -hmm. of what they've become with this, these highly speculative merchant banks, investment banks, stockbroking houses, investment banks, where it's all been jammed together into these huge, too-big-to-fail operations that have gone out of control. In this country, you've got, they've got something like $35 trillion of derivatives, these side bets that have blown out of all proportions since the 1990s. So instead of the government saying, well, let's actually look at this thing sanely, protect the system by breaking off that what we actually need mm -hmm. through glass, this process, what we call Glass-Steagall. And this is a law that was brought in by Roosevelt in 1933, in fact, which actually was dealing with the same sort of problem back then, where he actually separated out the necessary banking system and that was by a law called Glass-Steagall at that point, the, the, the Protection Bill Act at that point was actually what it was called. But, but the intention was, was that intention. So why not go back to that? Instead, what we have today is an institution that's been given dictatorial powers not to protect the people, but to protect the banks. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're exposing here. Yeah. Because there's no intention to protect the people. It, well, exactly. And, you know, if you give these powers to APRA, I mean, we know what we're going to get. And we, in this week's Australian Alert Service, which is our weekly publication, and you can, if you haven't already done so, call in, we'll send you a free copy. And this week's edition in particular is very interesting because there's an article in here by a former employee of APRA, Craig, and this is a senior analyst and um, high-level uh, manager of data collection for over five years. And he makes the case 
that APRA's job is protecting the banks. Now that was confirmed actually on Wednesday in the House of Representatives Economic Committee by the Chairman of APRA himself, Wayne Byers. And he was talking about the case of the money laundering with the Commonwealth Bank. And he said two things. He said APRA was aware that Austrac, the Financial Intelligence Agency, was not happy with the way CBA had responded to its warnings of what was going on. So they knew that and they did nothing. And also he talked about the inquiry, the so-called independent inquiry, which APRA is now going to run for six months into CBA. And he said that the purpose of the inquiry is that it's necessary to, quote, generate an improvement in public understanding and public acceptance and allow the bank to restore its reputation. So basically all he was concerned about was allowing CBA to keep functioning as normal. And of course that um, inquiry is going to be run by former APRA chairman John Laker uh, and two other former bankers, Graham Samuel and Gillian Broadbent. So you're not going to get any truth coming out of that. Uh, now the other thing I wanted to bring into this is the fact that the Treasurer of Australia, Scott Morrison, responded to a letter from a Member of Parliament who put to the Treasurer our proposal for Glass-Steagall and expected a serious response. And on last week's show, we showed how uh, the letter, the response that came back to the MP was just a copy and pasted version of mm. a reply to a letter from a CEC activist three years earlier. The majority, like 90% of it, was just copied and pasted. But in that letter, Morrison said, look, our banks are well regulated and therefore we don't need Glass-Steagall. Well, let's just look at the regulating job APRA has done. The housing bubble. We have here in Australia a bigger housing bubble than the US bubble in 2007-08. We have a bigger proportion of interest-only loans. We have a greater and record household debt than the US pre-GFC. How's that for the record? We have liar loans now, which UBS has just warned, are worth about $500 billion of the current housing loans in Australia and could threaten financial stability of the entire system. Now these are loans, Elisa, where people, I think 900 people were interviewed by a, a group, uh, UBS, I think it was, mm. and they were asked, did you lie about your loan applications? Did you fudge it? And a huge proportion of them said that they did, mm -hmm. which amounted to something like $500 billion of mortgages in the system. So, and that was those people who just admitted to the fact yeah. that they lied. And then you have the whole other part of it, which are the banks telling them to lie or just doing it. I mean, you look at what um, Wells Fargo was doing in the United States. You think that's not, that kind of thing's not no, going on here? That's right. Um, now, you also had the financial uh, research firm LF Economics, which has said that APRA is responsible for the bubble by allowing the dodgiest lending practices in the world. They basically created, they said, a model which only works if the speculative value of the housing bubble keeps rising. So APRA's done nothing about any of this. They've done nothing about the case of Commonwealth Bank. And now we want to give them more power as a supreme authority in a crisis. And Craig, what you said earlier about giving a statutory body more power. I mean, this is the very definition of fascism, actually erecting a private power over and above elected government. There's no question that the people will lose out and the banks will be protected in a financial crash. So we really need to scrap APRA 
and bring Glass-Steagall here into Australia. That's why we're finding, at least, there are more and more federal politicians that we've had a, been on a mobilisation for, for some weeks now. And a lot of our members, as we are a political party, have been taking our submission for Glass-Steagall to federal members. Now, those federal members are starting to feel the heat because, as we've said, for 10 years, the global financial crisis has never been dealt with. They are starting to see the reports on Four Corners and other places about the, the housing bubble. They see these reports from LF Economics and they're starting to say, what's going on? We're circulating these fake letters, not just fake news in the media, but fake letters from the Treasurer, mm. you know, copying letters from three years ago, you know, these fake treasure responses, you know, covering up for their responses, you know, by APRA and so forth. Look, the APRA, ASIC, the Treasury, they're all in lockstep in terms of protecting the system for the banks. Mm. And the banks are being protected or have been protected up to now by the political structures in this country. If you go back to what was done in World War II by Curtin and Chifley, the structures were not protected back then. We had a Commonwealth Bank that was deployed by the government mm. using the reserve powers inside the Commonwealth Bank. At that point, the Commonwealth Bank used those powers to control the private banks, where there could have been a lot of profiteering by the private banks. The curtain Shifley government said no. The Commonwealth Bank reined those private banks in and the economy functioned because the credit was directed to where it should have been mm -hmm. and the private banks weren't allowed to profit. Now, that's a principle here where the government, through a, a strong national bank, directs the private banks. And that's the sort of system that we have to go back to. Yeah, and that's why we don't need APRA. Between that system, the national bank, between Glass-Steagall regulation, which prohibits speculation, will prevent any kind of crisis, we actually can just cancel APRA. Well, we, we wrote about this in our book, uh, Elisa, What Australia Must Do. We wrote this back in, I think it was 2001. To survive the Depression. Yeah, yeah what, what Australia must do to survive the Depression. We've written the legislation for a national bank, you know, the Commonwealth National Credit Bank, and in, within that legislation, we call for the re-establishment of the reserve powers of the National Bank, which is what you said before about, you know, we don't need APRA, mm -hmm. which is an interesting idea. I mean, bring back the reserve powers of a national bank. Mm, absolutely. So, so we'll stop there for a quick break, but afterwards we're going to come back and talk about the development solution to end the era of war. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Now we're discussing BRICS development strategy can end era of permanent war. So, you know, everyone for decades now is familiar with the prospect of permanent war because if it's not one part of the world, it's another, Craig. Mm. Um, now we want to talk about the uh, prospects of ending war with peaceful collaboration and development, which China and Russia are leading the way with through the BRICS Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, but also through a variety of other organisations as well. And there's been some uh, movement forward on that in recent weeks. Um, but, you know, look at Syria as an example, actually, because it was two years ago, around about now, that Putin, President Putin of Russia, went to the U United Nations General Assembly and basically said to the US, look what you've done, look what you've set up by supporting Al-Qaeda and so forth, and Russia said, we're going to intervene. And now we're at the point, you know, Aleppo's been taken back, Dairet Zor has just been surrounded and ISIS isolated. So there's big breakthroughs that are taking place. And now China and Russia are pushing the same approach in North Korea. And it's actually looking very promising between two major conferences that have just occurred. 
one you and Robert spoke about last week on the show, which was the BRICS Forum in Xiamen in China, where President Xi of China named the Belt and Road Initiative as a platform for peace and development, which underpin and reinforce each other. So peace and development are reciprocal in that way. Uh, and the entire gathering, which included additional countries other than the BRICS, agreed to a peaceful approach to solving the North Korean issue. Now, following upon that, Putin went directly to Vladivostok for the Eastern Economic Forum on the 6th to 7th of September. And he said that the Korean problem can't be settled with sanctions alone because that will just drive North Korea into a corner. And what was interesting is that the North Korean Minister of Foreign Economic Relations was actually at this forum. Um, the South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, met with Putin and he said, look, we want to create an economic community where South and North Korea can prosper together. There was much discussion about trilateral cooperation between South Korea, North Korea and Russia, uh, talking about rail, pipeline, industrial and port development and also bringing China in to that as well because there's border regions between China, North Korea and Russia. One of the things that Putin got very excited about was the proposal to co connect Russia's Sakhalin Island to the Russian mainland from its northern end, and we'll put this up on the screen, so the northern end of that island to the Russian mainland, and from the south, connecting that island to Japan's Hokkaido Island, the largest island. And that's something that was envisioned in our World Land Bridge report. This is a recent report from a couple of years ago, but we put out a report in the early 90s on the Eurasian Land Bridge, which had the same exact map. And Putin said, look, this will be a project that will be planetary in nature, because he talked about joining South Korea with North Korea by rail, then with the Trans-Siberian, which would transform everything, and the whole region would become a gateway to the Northern Sea Route, which we'll also put a map up so you can see where that is, the alternative route to Europe. Russia has been recently pushing greater development of the Arctic Circle and are wor working closely with South Korea to do that. South Korea is a big builder of icebreaker ships and so forth. They agreed to further projects. They've got um, vast plans to develop the ports in that region. This is a key outlet to bring Russian grain, which Russia is now the biggest producer at the moment, mm. uh, down into the Asian Pacific region. So this is very exciting, Craig, but people would have no idea that this is even going on. Well, Lisa, you've, as you mentioned, this idea of permanent war, right? This is a doctrine that came very much strongly in place with George Bush and Dick Cheney way back in the early, or well, the late 90s, actually, really, after Bill Clinton. Effectively, this doctrine was permanent war, permanent revolution. So and you've had this for, for, what, 14, 15 years? You know, all the way through Barack Obama, the Asia pivot. These neoconservatives mean literally overthrowing, with the likes of Tony Blair in the UK, overthrowing legitimate sovereign governments through war, replacing mm -hmm. them on this idea of responsibility to protect. So you've seen entire nation states collapse, being overthrown, you know, dic you know uh, leaders elected, you know, well, okay, they're dictators, but they've been e executed. Failed states like Libya. Uh, and, and somewhat Iraq these days as well, but uh, you, the potentiality of what was going to take place in Syria until yeah. Russia stepped in. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing in North Korea, as we said last on last week's show, uh, the leadership in North Korea is saying, well, if we don't develop the ability to, to defend ourselves through nuclear weapons, 
then we're going to end up as a failed state as well. We have to have this protection. That's the way that they think. And that's mm -hmm. not very, very good. But what you do see, Elisa, is this counterposition, this tremendously powerful counterposition of the BRICS against this neoconservative permanent war, permanent revolution, failing system. Mm -hmm. And it's a failing system because the global financial system is crashing. Because it's all built upon that. Yeah. So on the one hand, you've got and you've got this great tension, and I, and I think you can see, look, North Korea is like, like in the in the fault line of this. Yeah. So to the degree that the North Korea solution is found and solved, then you can see a massive shift yeah. in world relations right throughout that entire sector, and this is what the, uh, the you know the, the neoconservatives are terribly concerned about. Mm. Um, and and look, where where do we fit in Australia? Well, we're you know very much on the you know, the, the British line, the, the Asia pivot line, we have been for a long time. We've, we, we don't have an independent foreign policy position. Malcolm Fraser was very, uh, very, very scathing about this, talking about our dangerous allies, how we get sucked back into these crazy, crazy foreign, uh, foreign positions. We need to be sovereign in this. We need to, as a sovereign country, align with the BRICS, develop our sovereignty, build massive infrastructure projects yeah. in this country, take advantage of the technologies that China's developed with high-speed rail and space technologies and so forth, and really develop our country. Mm, exactly. And the prospect of war, you know, becomes, it dwindles because when countries are working together, collaborating together for mutual benefit, they don't want war. And then that ability to pick countries off and to start wars will fail. Now, a couple of other projects I wanted to mention to give the further flavour of it is one in Africa, which China's looking to build, and that's Transaqua. Uh, in June, the Chinese construction company that built the Three Gorges Dam, Power China, signed a deal with an Italian firm, Bonifica, which designed a project um, which um, it will build the largest infrastructure project in Africa in history, uh, which is to do develop and bring water into the Lake Chad region. And again, we've got a map and, and graphics to put up. 30 million people depend on Lake Chad, but it's drying up. There's ample water that can be brought in from the Congo Basin, the Congo River being the second largest in the world and all of the water, of course, flows out to sea and is just wasted. Only 3 to 4% would be required to divert, to replenish Lake Chad uh, and build agricultural, irrigated agricultural regions, dams, reservoirs, navigable waterways and electricity generation through a 2,400 kilometre canal which... Bonifica had quite an issue to solve how to do it because you'd have to bring it above, over mountains, bring it uphill and so forth. But they figured out the way to do it. And China's Move um, Southwater North program was a big inspiration for this, actually. And then I want to mention the Kra Canal as well. This is a sea level canal across Thailand, which would reduce transit time between the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea by about 2,200 kilometres which is two or three days sailing time and would unclog the Malacca Straits. And that's being looked at now by a Chinese company as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. It's gaining support at the highest levels. There's even a petition campaign that hundreds and thousands of the locals have signed. Uh, and there was a major conference on this as well. Now, we've played, our organisation's played a major role in this and we'll tell you about it right after this quick break.
Welcome back to the CEC report where we're discussing development to, as a means of diplomacy and to prevent war. And we've just talked about a few different development projects and our organisation internationally with Executive Intelligence Review and the Schiller Institute has played a major role in bringing these projects to the fore actually. The Kra Canal for example, in October 1983 EIR and its science arm, the Fusion Energy Foundation, held a conference in Bangkok to promote the proposal co-sponsored by the Mitsubishi Global Infrastructure Fund and we've been the biggest promoters of it and still are to this day. And I want to reference some coverage in China about our role in this. The China Daily, for example, on 18th August this year, covered um, some of the history of Helga Zeppelarouche as the president of the Schiller Institute and her campaign for the new Silk Road for many years from the early 1990s, describing it as her um, they described the Belt and Road Initiative as fulfilling her lifelong pursuit and they reviewed her various trips to China and ended by saying, she said, quoting Helga, saying, we are very happy. It is one thing for a small organisation like ours to produce ideas, but it's quite a different thing that the largest country in the world has started to do it. And then the People's Daily on the 21st of August um, had a whole article about the Transaqua project that we just talked about. And under the subhead of the uh, role of LaRouche, it said, thanks to the fight taken up by the LaRouche organisation over the years and the initiators of Transaqua, the project is today becoming reality within the framework of the Belt and Road Initiative. Executive Intelligence Review Magazine and the Schiller Institute in 2015 arranged the first meeting between the Lake Chad Basin Commission and the brains behind Transaqua, being Bonifica. This was followed in December 2016 by the signing of the Memorandum of Understanding between the LCBC and Power China and subsequent contacts between Bonifica and the Chinese company. So that's really good that they've you know, reported our role in that and they see it for what it is. And uh, Craig, I wanted to bring to you the idea that we included in this week's uh, Australian Alert Service. We reprinted an article from nearly 20 years ago, from 1998, which was about the Tennessee Valley Authority and not just how great it was and what it did to transform America, but how it was, it, people from virtually every country in the world were sent by governments to study it. And they went with this idea and at the end of the article we said, under these conditions, the concept and approach of the TVA embodied in the initiative, our initiative for the Eurasian land bridge will once again become the model for worldwide economic developments. And the, one of the maps they had in that report of China had the Three Gorges Dam, the South Water North, it's all been built just about. Yeah, well, one, one of the things uh, people may not know, at least well, we were very close to Professor Lance Endersby, who was one of the seminal engineers on the uh, Snowy Mountain Scheme, right? We work with him in terms of water projects and, and his passion for the great Australian ring road, high-speed rail right around Australia. Now, he went to the Tennessee mm. Valley Authority and was one of the key, well, one young engineer on that. He brought back his knowledge of that and applied it to the Snowy Mountain Scheme. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he made inventions like rock bolts and so forth and necessary in order to be able to develop the Snowy Mountain Scheme. So the Tennessee Valley Authority in specifically played a key role in the only major uh, infrastructure development, national infrastructure development project we've ever built in this country. And, and the reason you know, the TVA was built in the first place because, was because Franklin Roosevelt had this idea that infrastructure was totally vital to really use, uh, use it as an economic generator for real wealth, employing many, many people, mobilising industry, developing capacities 
that weren't previously able to be developed mm. in any other possible way. And that's what we're still going to do today. It's the same model. Yeah. But the knowledge of how to do that it seems to be lost on many people. Mm. We have but to bring it back. Trump could certainly take a lesson from that and now, you know, follow the Chinese as the Chinese followed the well, TVA. That's right. Um, so it's come back full course. So call in if you haven't already for a copy of our alert service to find out more. Thanks for tuning in this week. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. And join us again next week.